It's May 15th, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Tonight, uh, something a little bit different. Normally, we record our NACOcasts in a very dingy studio in the basement of the National Arts Centre, where our new media production team holes up and does their magic with their computers. But tonight, we have a live audience, and we're in the lobby of the National Arts Centre immediately after performance of the National Arts Centre Orchestra. The most special thing of all was the premiere of Gary Kulesha's Third Symphony, and Gary Kulesha is sitting with me tonight. Welcome to the NACOcast, and welcome to the NEC, Gary. Thank you, Chris. So, a third symphony, a third symphony apparently modeled upon your interests on Beethoven 6 and Beethoven 7. What on earth is that about? Well, um, it has a long genesis. The piece had a long genesis. Uh, my first couple of symphonies were very big and ambi- ambitious pieces. They were both written for the Toronto Symphony and premiered by them. Uh, the first piece in particular had an interesting evolution because uh, it was written when Yuka Pekasaraste was still at the TSO. And Yuka was, Yuka comes from a, a background of really what you might call hardcore new music. And so, although I never really was a hardcore new music composer, he wanted me to explore, he had some ideas about exploring some really off the wall ideas in the piece. And uh, one of the ideas he came up with was a piece for two conductors and orchestra, because he knew I conducted as well. And at first I kind of went, well, that seems awfully gimmicky. And the more I began to think about it, the more I began to realize it was really an interesting idea. It, you know, it, it got very musically complex. It was about how tempos phase against each other, which incidentally happens in the Third Symphony as well. But it became this very, very complicated exercise in um, musical thinking and structure. And that piece ended with a very ambiguous sort of dying away ending. The ending of that piece I knew was not really an ending. And when I came to write my second symphony about four or five years later, I actually begin at the exact moment where the first symphony ends. It literally begins with the exact same sounds. A symphonic cycle. It is. And actually it reminded me, I pointed out that it reminds me, many people don't, most people know the original Dracula the movie Dracula. Most people don't know the movie The Daughter of Dracula. I missed that one. Okay, well, it's the second in the sequence, and in fact, it begins at the exact moment that the original movie ends. So there's a precedent for this. My, my symphony's kind of, I was kind of thinking about that. Um, and the second symphony, again, is a very big and ambitious work. And um, when I was writing it, I heard the Sixth Symphony of Beethoven here at the NACO, conducted by Bram Tovey. And I knew the moment I heard it that I wanted, that that was kind of going to have to be the departure point for this piece. That there's, a, there's just an ease in that, an ease in music making in Beethoven VI after the tremendous effort of the Fifth Symphony, you know, the big drama of the Fifth Symphony. There's just an easiness in the Sixth. I, I, when I heard it, I just went, okay, I have to have that. That's got to be in my piece. It's normally considered the first major programmatic symphony in the sense that it is representational of something, generally scenes of nature, and Beethoven was very descriptive about the bucolic scenes, the 
the sound of birds, the running of water, and the peasant dances, and even the storm in the last moment. So have you a programmatic uh, theme in this symphony? No, there isn't one. Um, instead, I tried to capture just kind of those musical qualities. Actually, the, the pastoral is interesting because some of the most interesting textures and sounds in it and, and some of the most risky things that he does in it come about as a direct result of that. They come about because he's trying to do something programmatic. I mean, as a composer, I find, it, I find the first movement absolutely you know, at, at simultaneously compelling and wonderful and preposterous because the entire development section is one idea repeated over and over. It goes dun da da dun 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 da da dun da in a variety of different keys. And of course, it's the brook running by. I mean, it's very clearly modeled on a, on a natural phenomenon. And it's such a risky thing for him to have done, to have turned his back on a traditional developmental process. So he just makes wonderful sounds out of his program. And in my piece, I'm not, it's not programmatic in that sense, but it is very much about those kinds of sounds, making interesting sounds out of those well, ideas. Well, right from the very first measure, the first movement we have in the, in the woodwinds, pop, 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 a little 16th note passages, yeah. is that your bubbling brook? Hmm, not consciously, mm-hmm. but it may well have come out of that. That's interesting because of the, the rhythmic, of course, the, one of the wonderful things about both Beethoven 6 and 7 is the rhythmic impulse. And this whole piece is very much about the rhythm and about the rhythmic impulse. This is most obvious to me in the third movement with the famous Beethoven 7 rhythm, which is which you use very, very effectively, I must say. Well, in fact, the only, the only literal moment is almost an in-joke amongst musicians. It's the bum ba dum bum ba dum You know, the the difficulty that orchestras have finding that in the Seventh Symphony. It's it's, a difficult rhythm to play. It is a very difficult rhythm. Actually, in a previous uh, edition of our NACOcast last year, we discussed the the challenges of that particular rhythm. It's a 6-8 rhythm with a dotted 8 16th eighth note. And it's very difficult for a large group of musicians to actually maintain this rhythm without it becoming gradually distorted into something different. It gets longer and has a tendency to get longer. And it is a challenging rhythm, but it was, it's, a, you know, it's a great dance rhythm, and it, it was the backbone of, my, of the third movement of my piece. And the backbone of this symphony for me is the extraordinarily beautiful second movement, which is a side of you that I have not heard. You mean the lyrical side? Well, I've heard the <laughs> lyrical side, but there's, there's a deep inner searching, especially in that wonderful oboe solo, that w- was quite striking to me. Well, um, you know... Uh, I think a lot of this piece is about being middle-aged. <laughs> I don't know how, to, how else to say it. And a lot of what attracted me to Beethoven VI is that effortless quality that it has after the Fifth Symphony. And uh, in, my, in the piece that I wrote immediately before this, which was a cello concerto for Shauna Ralston and the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, I began to explore this exact same quality, the sense that everything, for a composer, everything should follow from some inner voice. As a young composer, I think we are often tempted to prove something. And you, I think most composers reach a point, certainly sounded like Beethoven did with the sixth, reach a point where they just no longer have anything to prove. And for me, the, the cello concerto and very much this, this third symphony is, I think, kind of 
a comfortable middle age. Is a younger composer trying to prove his or her originality? Yes, very much. And we saw that in Beethoven, of course, yes. in the opening of the first symphony of Beethoven. Yes. The very first chord is absolutely revolutionary. It's, it's wrong. It's wrong because up to that time, every piece of of symphonic music began with a tonic chord, whether in major or minor. And he begins on a, what we call a secondary dominant. Right. So he had to do something original. Right. And, and everything after that, as you say, up until up, up through the Fifth Symphony, is incredibly original. So I understand what you're getting at. Let me just turn the conversation slightly toward the whole issue, it's a huge issue, of accessibility of modern music. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read you something that you wrote. Please, okay. please forgive me. But what you say is, one of my pet peeves is contemporary music that is incapable of being anything other than relentless angst or agitation. These are the two cliches of the latter part of the 20th century. We can write really agitated, angst-ridden music, but we have a lot of trouble writing really beautiful, exquisite, and tender music. Yes, I, do. I did say that, and I do believe that. Do you, did you have trouble writing exquisite and tender music? I, I maintain that this symphony is particularly exquisite and tender. Was this a huge struggle for you to get to this part in your life? Um, to get to this part in my life, to, to write the piece was not. To get to this part in my life was a struggle. Um, I think, actually, you know, the, the second movement evolved so naturally that... It, it almost frightened me because I was telling somebody earlier in the week the story of how I wrote that opening. Um, I had finished the first movement and um, normally what happens in a, in a multi-movement piece for me is I will finish the movement, then I will take at least a couple of days off of writing completely, maybe a couple of weeks before starting the next movement. And what happened with this piece was I finished the first movement and began to think, I've been, uh, you know, I think about the second movement all the way through, made a conscious decision to go with, with a classical model. That is, the first movement is kind of in D. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go with this classical model, so I'm going to do a slow movement kind of in A. And I sat down at the piano, and I played the opening exactly the way you hear it. And I just went, oh, well, that's it. And I even improvised a little bit of that oboe solo. So the piece flowed so... Na that, that movement flowed so naturally out of the first movement. It was a little bit scary, actually. But, but to, I think to get to the point where you... In one's career as a composer, where one just lets go of everything, that's a difficult thing to do. And I think part of it is... Part of it is an inner journey. Part of it, part of it is just sheer professionalism. Part of it is just being there doing it a long time, having the opportunity to work on projects that you are passionate about, and in a sense, getting that out of your system. You know, uh, I think the, my first symphony, I'm very proud of it, and I think it was an absolute, you know, for, it was a pinnacle for me at the time. It was a, a very strong piece, I think, and I, I'm delighted that I wrote it. Now I, that's out of my system. I don't have to do that again. And so once one has accomplished all of these kind of mini Mount Everests, I think you do reach a point where you're just much more comfortable with the music making. And where I, you know, one of the things that composers go through, it's a very difficult thing. You mentioned it a minute ago, this concept of accessibility. I mean, we, I'm, I'm of an age where when I was a student, we argued about that a lot. You know, that was a big matter of, of whether or not music should be 
tone. Can, can audiences understand it, first yeah. hearing or it, second hearing? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there were, there were political camps about this. There were people who felt that anything that was atonal was absolutely unacceptable and people who felt that if it was tonal, Because it was you were still growing up in, in the whole pedagogy of modernism. That's right, exactly. I mean, I was, when I was being trained as a composer, it was okay to sound like Webern, but it was not okay to sound like Prokofiev. So, you know, that was really an issue for me when I was growing up. And um, I, I think that uh, my generation in particular grew up with this aesthetic struggle very much at the forefront. So, and I teach, which means that I deal with this with students constantly. I'm constantly struggling with um, their struggle with the concept of accessibility, of reaching an audience and how you do that. My problem with, with quote, accessibility, is when a composer writes down to an audience. I, I consider that to be totally unacceptable. But what I realized in the writing of the cello concerto was that I wanted to write a music, I, I jokingly said, I'm going to write a music without an aesthetic. And what I meant by that was that although I have to deal with it, with these aesthetics, I had to deal with it when I was a student, and now have to deal with it as a teacher, an aesthetic should flow from the music, not vice versa. You know, you write the music, and then if you want to evolve an aesthetic theory about accessibility or inaccessibility or modernism or anything else, that should come from the music that you have written. And the, the luxury of, of being at a point in my career where I can simply turn my back on all the arguments, that's hard one. So it's okay now in your life to embrace tonality? Well, I've always been a tonal composer in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. the, the real question, and even Ligeti, you know, who passed away almost exactly a year ago now, just before he passed away, he said something very interesting which really struck me. He said, you know, back in the 60s, it was simply unacceptable to be tonal. You couldn't do it. It would have been laughed off the stage. And yet, after we'd finished going through the avant-garde and we'd gone through all of that process, we realized that we had lost a lot, that there was something that we had to find. And so now here we are, and this is almost a direct quote, here we are, stuck between the avant-garde and tonality, and we can't go back. And the challenge for him was, of course, to go forward, and then he died. You know, he kind of stuck the rest of us with it. But that is the challenge, because there's no question that both tonality, atonality, the avant-garde, modernism, anti-modernism, romanticism, they have to coexist now. And the challenge is no longer really an aesthetic one in that sense. It's a communicative one. It is now to look at these materials, to look at the ways in which we can speak with music and try to make a coherent but contemporary message out of it. Because we can't make a message about life in 1750. We have to make a message about life in 2007. Isn't it interesting that in 2007, a hundred years after Le Sacre de Printemps, Stravinsky and, you know, the first bold and sharp daggers of modernism began to be inflicted in European music, that the contemporary listener, like it or not, still hears in, the, in 18th century language. Would you say that this is largely because so much of the popular idiom is harmonically so unbelievably simple? Well, I, there are lots of reasons why I think that happens. I think part of it... I really believe is hardwired. I mean, the, the science of bioacoustics is now beginning to take off. We are now beginning to investigate directly the impact of the of music of sound on the brain. And we're beginning to discover that 
we are to some extent hardwired to the harmonic series, which as you know is the basis for the tonal system. We can't really get into too much technical detail, but tonality comes from the fact that a single tone has a harmonic series. And so there are some indications that human beings are just hardwired to that, 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 that there's an expectation that somehow the syntax of music is derived from that. And we're also hardwired to hear groupings in, in Western music we call them major and minor and chromatic scales. Right. In, in Eastern music you have pentatonic scales. In the Far East we have octatonic scales. We're used to hearing things at the most uh, basic primitive level in scales and melodies. Well, that's right. And in fact, when you look at, at any culture anywhere in the world, the, the similarities between the scales and modes that we use is remarkable. Yes, the in Eastern Indian classical music is very sophisticated and uses microtones, but by and large, you know, we're using all the basic same materials, and there's got to be a reason for that. Um, I think also that, that one of the big things that we hear is rhythm, and one of the great revolutions, of course, of the 20th century was in rhythm, but the other thing that happened in the 20th century was the, was the rise of popular music, which has its roots in a much simpler rhythmic process, simpler even than any of the classical music that had come before it. So there's an interesting mixture in the 20th century of traditional classical music rhythmic process that has then been tempered by both composers' interests and audiences' interests in popular music. And one of the things that I think is a very powerful tool in contemporary music is rhythm. So, you know, when we, when we kind of combine, combine this need to return to some kind of clear tonal or loosely tonal syntax with a much more clear rhythmic process, we're really talking about a lot of very basic elements, but which are basically challenging us to find a new and fresh way to use them. Okay. I think we should open up the floor here. We have a number of people in the audience here. Do we have some questions for Gary Kulesha? Please, could you stand up to the microphone there, sir, if you're going to do one? There's a microphone right here. And that way, your voice will be recorded for posterity and available around the world on the internet. Good evening. Uh, in the movie Amadeus, there is this famous scene there where uh, Salieri is uh, uh, sort of saying that... Uh, Mozart was, the music was dictated to him, that he was basically just sitting down and, and taking dictation. Is, is it, do you think, first of all, that that, that could be? Or, and for you personally, do you, does it happen that way? Um, well, nobody compares to Mozart. Nobody ever has and nobody ever will. But I think, in, in a sense, yes, because Mozart is the last great composer who does not struggle with his art. Beethoven is the first great composer who struggles with his art. And, Be and Mozart is, I mean, for me, he's the most perfect of composers because he literally receives his, the history of music to that moment and it just flows through him. Like any great artist, he's a matrix. He is that unique coming together in that moment of human experience, the right place, the right time, so while I don't think, I think dictated is a little bit too, is not the greatest word, but I think absolutely it just crystallized within him somehow. Something about the human experience of his day crystallized and it just came out. Does it happen for me? Well, um, we know ab about Mozart that, for example, he never sketched music ever. He simply wrote it whole onto the page. I can't do that. We know that Mozart 
it is said, could grasp a whole piece of music, an entire symphony, in one flash, that he would just immediately know the whole piece. I can't do that. I can do a movement. I can grasp what a movement will do. But, you know, Aaron Copeland said um, in one of, his, uh, one, of, uh, one of his books, a line which I use a great deal, he said, Ah, Mozart, his very name causes despair in other composers. Nobody is like Mozart. Nobody could really compare. One other question, if I could. Uh, Chris was talking about a, uh, a brook earlier. When you are composing, are you actually... I have a photo uh, photography background, so I see everything in pictures. Do you see pictures when you're composing your music? Uh, sometimes. Uh, it's sometimes very graphic for me. Um, I'm a big film fan, and sometimes I think about the drama of film or an image from a film. Um, but in this particular piece, no, not really. This piece was much more just a kind of pure musical immersion for me. Good questions. Good evening. I wanted to follow up on something you said to the audience immediately before the performance of the piece when you talked about being inspired by your work with the National Arts Centre Orchestra over the last couple of years and really seeing this piece in some respects, I suppose, as a culmination and a celebration of, of that relationship. I'd like to get a sense from you of what you were looking to expose, celebrate, or stretch in the orchestra, what you learned about the piece through the rehearsal process, and finally, and you'll probably guess I was put up with this, put up to this, what's your jacket made out of? Uh-huh, 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 well, who put her up to that? Uh, the jacket's made out of bamboo. It's the newest, it is, it is, it's cloth woven from bamboo, it's the newest trend in cloth, and talk about a renewable resource, it's infinitely renewable. It wears like linen and it's very comfortable, I highly have, recommend I should have a bassoon made out of bamboo. You probably could. It'd you probably, probably a lot could. cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, every orchestra is a unique organism, and I've worked with most of the major orchestras in this country, I've had a long relationship with the Toronto Symphony. I've worked extensively with the Vancouver Symphony. I was the composer in residence at Kitchener-Waterloo for a while. Um, and now I'm working with the NACO. And I know that each orchestra has its own unique character. So, and, and of course, the other thing is that each orchestra has its own unique people. And I really, as a composer, very much like to work with people. Um, when I conceive of a piece for an orchestra, I am almost always thinking, oh, Chris Millard is going to be playing principal bassoon. Oh, okay. Here's, here's an F-sharp for him. You know, there's always something about it that tailors, that, that makes me think in a specific way about that music. So uh, what I'm celebrating here, I think, are the, uh, you know, the phenomenal soloists in this orchestra, the tremendous delicacy and sensitivity of sound that the orchestra is capable of. I mean, the Brahms concerto, the accompanying, the, the orchestra accompaniment, most people don't even notice, but it was so sensitive and the colors were so well drawn. Um, as in terms of stretching, well, I think any new piece will stretch an orchestra. This piece has some of the most difficult music I've ever written in it. I don't know how many people noticed the opening French horn solo, but it is preposterous to play. If one of my students had written this, I would have said, what are you, out of your mind? You can't give a horn player this solo. Um, so I think any time you ask an orchestra to play a new piece, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of rhythmic sleight of hand in it too, which is difficult to count. I mean, it's a, it's a really tricky piece in many, many ways. Um, I'm going to interrupt you yeah. there. 
In fact, for us, the piece was not difficult to put together because it was so sensibly constructed. Well, I was very conscious of the fact that it was that, you know, that if, if I'm coming from a classical model, that there was a certain way in which things were done. If anybody actually saw a video of Roberto, Roberto Minchuk was, did a wonderful job conducting it. If anybody actually watched him against the music, one thing they might notice is that his downbeats don't seem to be the downbeats of the music. Because in fact, while the piece is, the first movement is in 4-4, and the second movement is in 4-4, and the third movement is in 6-8, most of the music isn't in those meters at all. So the challenge there was to work within that very classical model and yet achieve the richness and variety that I would be accustomed to in, in writing any contemporary piece. Instead of changing meters, though, I wrote layers of meter. So it's, it, was quite, it is quite stretching. It's I, easy to put together. I'm but. just going to explain to our audience exactly what you're talking about. As an example, the slow movement of the symphony began with that gorgeous oboe solo. And it, while the conductor was indeed conducting in 4-4 four, four time, the entire solo was written in 5-4. So it was a question of finding half notes and quarter notes subdivided into five beats per measure and carried over measures that, that Chip Heyman had to find, the, find a way of navigating that rather complex rhythm. So this is what Gary's talking about when he's saying layering different meters on top of each other. I'm going to ask a question. And I want, to, I want to take up on something that you said to the previous, previous uh, ind individual here. Mozart. Modes of experience in 1770 and m modes of experience in 2007. How would you describe the relationship between what we talked about earlier in our conversation about tonality and... Um, architecture in music, how would you describe the relationship between what must have been a, a far, a far di certainly far different, but also perhaps in some ways a more limited range of experience for the, for the composer living 250 years ago? And what modes of experience in our tremendously different and extremely complex contemporary life cause you as a composer to do something radically different. What I'm trying to get at is how do you view historically the, the beautiful symmetry and tonality of the classical period as it relates to perhaps the order in, in the society and the simplicity in the society as opposed to the chaos of our modern political life and the, the daunting complexity of our day-to-day -day existence and, and the pursuant complexity of our harmonic language and rhythmic language? Well, there's a direct relationship. Um, you know, art, Busoni said that art must be contemporary. All art must be contemporary. And one of the things I have said for many years is that Mozart is still a contemporary composer because something about Mozart, something about all the great composers still speaks to us today. It still has something real in it about the human condition in 2007, but it's not complete. It was complete in its day and expressed very much uh, a truism, some kind of truth about the relationship of Mozart and the people around him to their environment and to their world. What subsequently happened was the gr world grew more complex. So while that core of experience remains an essential human core, 
it's been added to a great deal as time has gone by. Uh, earlier I said that Mozart was the last great composer who didn't struggle. And what I meant by that was that in Mo Mozart lived at an, in an era when, as you suggest, society, the structure of society was pretty clear. Mozart knew where he belonged. He knew how things worked. There was church, there was government. The arts fit in in a certain way. Beethoven is the first composer who struggles because he's the first guy who comes along to question that. He's the first person to come, first great artist to come along and say, well, now, wait a minute. Why aren't I the equal of princes and kings? I mean, shouldn't I be? And it shows in his music. You see the struggle. Also, you know, his deafness and all of his problems with the nature of God and the universe. And you can see that the music begins to reflect that. The music begins to struggle. Beethoven needs to break the rules. Mozart never felt, those, never felt that pressure. You know, I've, I've said this a couple of times also. It's not as though dissonance didn't exist in Mozart's day. And in fact, if you look at Mozart, the dissonant quartet, for example, the opening of, of this string quartet is totally atonal. Uh, there's also a passage in the G minor symphony, the number 40, in the development of the first movement, which is just lurches around completely atonally before it finds its foot. It's not that Mozart couldn't do that. It's that he had no reason to do that. He could, he could certainly imagine this music. We know that. He wrote some. There it is. But it didn't really fit into the way he received his world. It didn't become real for him. He, it was an experiment. It was kind of cute. Maybe he had fun doing it. Maybe his ear was drawn there. But he had no reason to pursue that path. And, and another, as an aside, I, I often tell my students that if it's been done in music, it's been done in Mozart. But Beethoven is the first composer to come along and struggle with that and say, okay, I need more. And he begins to break the rules, sometimes not very successfully. You know, sometimes he takes a chance that doesn't really particularly work out. But when it works, it sets a new standard. It changes everything. The Romantic era sees this increasing, sees what Beethoven went through, this initial struggle with philosophy, with, you know, with our relationship to the universe. This grows as a crisis through the Romantic era. And by the end of the Romantic era, we have Nietzsche saying that God is dead. Now, that's a much misunderstood quote. The actual quote is, God is dead in the hearts of men. And what I interpret that as meaning is that human society has progressed to the point where the traditional structures of church and state no longer apply, that we are struggling out of that, that we, we have, for better or for worse, that just doesn't work anymore. And sure enough, at the beginnings of the 20th century, we have tremendous revolutions in science, and you know, f we, we still can't overestimate the impact that uh, um, Freud had on his society. I mean, what he was saying was so startling that, that you have no idea who you are. You know, this was an amazing idea. And so at the beginning of the 20th century, we find this tremendous ferment in the human soul and, and this tremendous philosophical conundrum, these various conundra coming up, the art reflects that. The art of the day becomes neurotic. You know, um, Schoenberg, uh, Pierre Lunaire is the first great neurotic masterpiece. It's the first piece of music which not only admits to neurosis, it embraces it. It's about being neurotic. And the 20th century sees this through. Um, what happens, though, is that the 20th century accelerates so rapidly and the human experience becomes so complicated so fast that art audiences disconnect. Art may be able to keep up with it, but audiences are having trouble with that. And when we 
hit the end of the 20th century, actually particularly I think about the 1970s, art has gone so far beyond an audience's ability to, to keep up with it that, that we get that disconnect. We hit what I call the wasteland of the 70s. And it's taken us 30 years to go back and try to assess what of all of that stuff that we learned, all of that freedom that we acquired, what is useful there? What does it express? And what about the human condition in 2007 can we say as contemporary artists, and what do we need to say that? So I think there's, I think there's a huge growth uh, in the human condition, and I compare it to an onion, you know, that, that an onion is many, many layers. Well, Bach, you know, Palestrina is right at the core there, and then there's Bach, and then there's Mozart. You don't get rid of them as you become more mature as a race, as a human race, and you don't, and as a composer, you don't ignore those. You have to start there, because that, that is the most essential, true experience in music, in Western art music at least. And then you have to add layers of experience, human experience. And those layers of human experience require increasing fluidity of technique. So we add all of the various techniques that come afterwards. The challenge is to make it into music. You know, it's so much information. It's so much um, struggle with the human condition to, to even be able to be in tune with what's going on in the world is so difficult that that's the challenge, I think, of being a composer in the 21st century. Well, I must say, as a performer, performing musician in the 21st century, I'm very glad to have the opportunity to experience a new piece that has moved me as much as your piece today. You. I think the audience here probably will agree with me, and thank you for your effort in producing something so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's our NACOcast for this week. I want to thank Gary Kulesha for joining us and all, the, all of our fans here in the uh, NAC lobby. You've been listening to the NACOcast coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre. Please send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.